I don't know, Christianity just doesn't seem rational to me. I just don't get it. Like, there, there's so much stuff that doesn't make any sense. It seems like it's really anti-women. As a woman, if I'm going to be a Christian, does that mean I'm less than? Is it just me, or does the Bible seem completely outdated? outdated. All this stuff about slavery and women being mistreated. And it seems like Christians completely ignore science. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't think the same way you do? I want to say hi to everybody in this room, everybody uh, at all of our campuses, folks joining us online. So glad you're here. Can't wait for you to join us next weekend. Jeremy Affelt will be here Super Bowl weekend. Uh, and the Super Bowl will be featuring the Los Angeles Rams, uh, who are from where I used to live. Los Angeles, of course, means the angels, the messengers from God. And a ram was the sacrifice offered to God in the great story of Abraham. So I guess we know which team God will be for. Uh, the other team is just New England, not in the Bible at all. But anyway, uh, uh, back in 1795, uh, an English poet, William Blake, wrote a book, first time with this argument, really. The book was called All Religions Are One, saying that every religion is true in its own way, and they all really say the same thing. Recently, a professor of religion named Stephen Prothrow notes, this is an odd claim that we don't generally make in other spheres like politics or economics or education. Democracy is not the same thing as fascism. One of them is better, and we know which it is. Capitalism is not the same thing as communism. One of them is better, and I think we know which one it is. Stanford is not the same thing as Cal, and I could not get into either one. I was having dinner with several couples not long ago, and one young guy argued that in the old days when people were not really exposed to different religious viewpoints, it might be possible for people to think their religion was the right religion. But now we know there are intelligent people who hold different religious views, and it would be arrogant for any one person to think that they're right. Very interesting. There's a Christian philosopher, Alan Plantinga, who was born to a Dutch Christian family in Michigan. And he says, sometimes a student, often from California, will say to him, if you had been born in Morocco instead of Michigan, you'd be a Muslim instead of a Christian. And that's why I'm an agnostic. What you believe is just a byproduct of where you were born. And Plantinga's response is, but if you'd been born in Morocco instead of California, you'd be a Muslim instead of an agnostic. The simple fact that where we were born impacts what we believe does not give anybody a free pass from having to seek to discern where does truth lie. One of the questions I asked the people at that dinner was, do you want a particular religion to be true? I think that human nature being what it is, a lot of times we don't want for any one religion to be true because then we'd have to be accountable for our lives. It would take away our freedom. We'd prefer to use whatever spiritual realm there might be without being accountable to anybody. But I think a deep concern that many people have about religion is this. If people regard their religious belief as true and think people who disagree with them are wrong, won't that make them arrogant and superior? And isn't what that leads to religious violence in like the Crusades 
or the Inquisitions, or terrorism, or some of you will have seen a video that went viral this week of a confrontation involving people of different ages, different religious, ethnic backgrounds, that once again reveals very deep fissures in our society. Now, we actually had a, a wonderful multi-faith panel at our church a few years ago, and we're posting that, so if you missed it or you want to review it, you can check it out online. But today, I want to look at following Jesus, Christianity, and the posture of those who follow Jesus toward other faiths. And I want to do that by starting with what's really a, a quite disturbing story in the Bible, and then by looking at a rabbi named Saul and how he treated people who differed religiously from him, and then at a real dramatic change in his life, and then what that means for you and me. So here we go. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a, a book called the Book of Numbers, and Israel's just about to make it into the Promised Land. Their final enemy is the king of Midian. And the king tries to bribe a soothsayer, a guy named Balaam, to curse Israel. Balaam is riding his donkey on the way to do this, when an angel of the Lord blocks his path, Balaam in the story cannot see it, but the donkey does and stops moving. And when Balaam beats his donkey, his donkey says, why are you beating me? And Balaam says, because you're making a fool out of me. And the donkey says, am I not your own donkey? Do I, do I make a habit of doing this sort of thing? And Balaam says, well, you have a good point. And it's a pretty comic story. The donkey wins the argument. Balaam backs down. The king of Midian goes to plan B. And now the story gets dark. Plan B is for him to use or force a large group of Midianite women into promiscuous sexual relations with the Israelite men, which means that those men will be unfaithful to God and unfaithful to their wives and also get into idolatry. Now, idolatry was the ultimate moral and spiritual sinkhole for Israel. The prophets of Israel railed against idolatry, not because it was just a different religion, not, not even just because idols were false, but because idols did not demand justice for the poor or fidelity for your spouse or concern for widows and aliens or parental care for children. Idolatry meant trying to use spiritual power without spiritual or moral accountability or concern for justice. And it always ends up meaning enslavement for the idolaters. It meant superstition, in the ancient world, it often involved temple prostitution, particularly for women, sometimes infant sacrifice. Idolatry would mean for Israel the loss of ethical monotheism, the truth that there is one great God and he is good. It would mean spiritual, national, missional suicide for Israel. So it was unthinkable. Now, the low point was when one Israelite was so brazen that he brought his Midianite idolatrous girlfriend into his tent in full view of Moses, who had forbidden this. And, and that did it. A priest named Phineas grabbed a spear, ran into the tent, caught them both in the act, and killed them with a single step. It's a horrible story. It's very dark. It's very violent. The ancient world was a violent place. 
And in the story, as it was read by Israel, Phineas, who opposed idolatry, was a hero. And the key word in the story is the word zeal. Three times that word gets used to commend Phineas. He had zeal for the Lord. And that word in Israel took on a life of its own. This message, in a way, really is about that little word zeal. Long time later, about 200 years before the New Testament era, Israel was oppressed by a Syrian king, uh, who took the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means divine manifestation. So this was, this was a king who did not lack for self-esteem. And he killed countless Jewish people. And he desecrated the temple of their God by turning it into a pagan temple to Zeus. He defiled it by sacrificing a pig, which was an unclean animal for Israel, sacrificing a pig on their altar demanded that Israel betray their God. And, and a lot of Israel went along. But there was a priest known as Judas Maccabeus, Judas, that, Judah the Hammer. And he picked up a spear, and he led a rebellion that against all odds defeated Antiochus and made Israel relatively free for the better part of a century. If you've ever heard of Hanukkah, that's the event that it commemorates, that battle. It's told in the book of Maccabees, and that's a book that the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he was originally known, studied. Judas Maccabeus was called a hero like Phineas because, like Phineas, he had zeal. Because like Phineas, he took a spear, zeal to fight God's enemies. Now, this is all leading to a moment when God and other faiths and followers of Jesus and intolerance and violence will all get turned upside down. Okay? Fast forward a few more centuries. Now Israel's new enemy is Rome, and once again, many in Israel were prepared to compromise with Rome and become idolatrous to get along. But there were some in Israel, eventually they would come to be known as zealots, from that little word zeal. If you have read the New Testament much, you might have run across that word. And they believed they should fight God's enemies. They had zeal for God. And one of these people is a young man named Saul. It's Paul's original name. And we first meet him when he is helping at the execution. He's helping at the murder of a follower of Jesus whose name is Stephen. Stephen fell on his knees as he's being killed, as he's being stoned, and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul had zeal, like Phineas, like Judas the Hammer. He sincerely believed that those who disagreed with him would mislead Israel and should be stopped by any means possible, including prison or execution. This is how Saul later described himself in those early days. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Notice this. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for zeal, that's why he says that. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's what zeal looked like to Saul. Zeal for God was the courageous willingness to do anything to fight God's enemies, to stop them. 
He says to the church of Galatia, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was extremely zealous, that word again, for the traditions of my fathers. Paul did not have just zeal. He had what he calls here extreme zeal, like Phineas, like Judah. And then something happened that would change his life and that would change the history of the world. And would completely reverse the way that Saul or any follower of Jesus, including you and me, should regard, think about, live with people of any faith. It happens in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul's mind is full of Torah, God's law. His heart is full of zeal. He is on a mission for God. It is a dangerous and violent mission. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. It is given to some human beings, not many, some, to have a profound experience of God, of transcendent reality that is so shattering that it changes them forever, brings them sobriety or turns them around. And so it comes to Saul. He falls to the ground. And this is the moment maybe he's waited his whole life for. Maybe he thinks like Moses now, he is going to see the glory of God. His zeal is being rewarded by heaven. And his heart is pounding in his chest. And then something utterly unexpected happens. He is not commended by God for his zeal. He is rebuked for it. He is condemned for it. And this comes in the form of a question he could not have imagined. He falls to the ground, this light from heaven all around him. And then the question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What does this mean? Saul is doing the work of God. He is a hero of Israel. Who are you, Lord? asked Saul. He'd never asked that question before. He knew. He studied. He answered. He taught. But in this moment, before this reality, he has no answers. It was maybe the first time he'd asked that question in a long time. Who are you, Lord? He knows it's the Lord. He knows it's God. But he suddenly realizes he does not know God like he thought he knew God. Sometimes it comes to a human being to ask that question. Who are you, Lord, to ask it with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to want to know him more than you want anything in the world? Sometimes it comes. And there is a moment of silence. And Saul does not know it, but this moment is the end of his old life, the end of it. He's going to die and the beginning of a new one. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Every time you harm, every time you threaten, every time you kill a little one, brother, sister, who follows me, you persecute me. Now, now get up and you will be told what to do. 
I am Jesus. Comes to people sometimes. In one moment, all of his dreams are shattered forever. In one moment, all of his dreams were fulfilled, but in a way he never could have imagined. And he's face to face with the crucified one. Uh, People sometimes speak of the conversion of Saul, but that's not quite right. He did not for a second cease to believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rebekah. He did not for a a moment cease to revere Moses or love the law, the Torah, or, or reverence the prophets. It's just this happens to people sometimes. Everything got turned upside down. He had been absolutely right to be zealous for God, but tragically wrong about what zeal consists of. He was completely correct that God was at work in the world, but horribly misguided, horribly misguided, as we can all get about what God's work looks like until he sees, until he sees the crucified one. I am the one that you are persecuting. And Saul is literally blinded by the reality In Jesus, and supremely Jesus on the cross, the persecuted Jesus, Saul finally sees the kind of zeal that God requires. Not the zeal to kill your enemies, but zeal to die on their behalf. Not the zeal to persecute your enemies, but the willingness to suffer persecution in order to help them. The zeal God is looking for is the zeal to love, the zeal to forgive, the zeal to embrace, the zeal to identify with, to understand, to break down barriers, to realize in repentance that those we thought were enemies are beloved by God. So now how do we, you and me and our church, think about, feel about, relate to people of other faiths? Saul, now blind, is led by the hand to a home in Damascus where for three days he fasts and prays. Meanwhile, God comes in a vision to a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus named Ananias. And God says, Ananias, I want you to go to this house and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul and pray for him for his sight to be restored. And Ananias says, Lord, thou hast had many good ideas, but this ain't one of them. You probably have not heard with all you have to do running the universe, but Saul is not really what I would call a safe person. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias goes. By the way, when God calls you to do something, just because you don't feel peace about it does not mean you're off the hook. Almost never in the Bible, when God calls somebody to do something, do they say, Lord, I feel peace about this. Peace generally lies on the other side of obedience, not this side. Ananias goes to the door. Asks for Saul. Saul, the killer, the persecutor of followers of Jesus, of whom Ananias is one. And Saul is brought to the door. Sure enough, he's blind. 
Ananias, who may well have been one of the disciples from Jerusalem who had to escape, run for his life because of Saul's persecution. Ananias, who may well have had loved ones or even family members imprisoned or killed because of Saul. Ananias speaks. And he doesn't say, Oh, Saul, you're in trouble now. God will make you suffer many things. He told me so. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Now, we're in another spiritual reality here, guys. Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Anthropologists have a wonderful phrase for this. Uh, they talk about what they call fictive kinship groups. People who are not part of your biological family, but become part of your relational family, become like honorary family. My first writing project a lot of years ago was with a partner from Singapore. Every week I would go over to his house to write, and he would have all of his young kids call me Uncle John. Not Mr. Ortberg, Uncle John. I felt so honored. I started going over there even when we did not have work to do, just to hear that Uncle John. I come from a Scandinavian culture where we don't even call our real uncles uncle because then someone might be expected to hug somebody else. <laughs> Followers of Jesus were to treat people who differed religiously from them, even who persecuted them, by placing their hand on them and saying, Brother Saul. What kind of movement is this? What kind of people are these? And as a matter of historical record, no matter what you think of him, nobody would extend the fictive kinship group more radically, more inclusively, more promiscuously than Saul, whose favorite language for human beings just becomes brother and sister. He became a student of how Jesus was with the religiously other. In Luke 9, Jesus and his disciples are going through a Samaritan village. And the people there, because they were Samaritans, Samaritans Jews didn't get along at all. People there did not welcome him. And the disciples asked Jesus, Master, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? We have zeal. Yes, we do. And the text says that Jesus rebuked his disciples, not the Samaritans. The exact same pattern we see with Saul. They were not commended for their zeal either. They were rebuked for it. Jesus loved and served and cared for and touched people of other religions, pagan Canaanites and Roman centurions and Samaritans, the same way he did people of Israel. It's as if Jesus thinks that his presence, his healing, his message has somehow burst through the boundaries of merely human religion and that if somebody just wants him, just responds to him, just listens to him, just follows him, God will somehow take care of all the rest. And so it was. And in the end, when people hated him, Jesus did not take a spear in his hands like Phineas or like Judas Maccabeus. He took a spear in his side. It is on a cross that the world would finally learn what zeal for God looks like. That's zeal for God. And once Paul met this Jesus, this spear-pierced, crucified Messiah, Paul could never look at zeal the same way. And this is why later on he would say about 
others in Israel who were part of that old zeal movement, people that he loved dearly. For I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, religious zeal not based on knowledge is very dangerous. We see it in our world every day, the belief that somehow killing the enemies of God is an act of service to God. But that zeal not based on knowledge is not just out there. It's in the judgmentalism or the fear or the superiority or the hatred or the apathy or the coldness of my own heart. What does zeal based on knowledge look like? This new kind of zeal that Paul receives from Jesus. Well, it's the exact opposite of what Paul used to think. He would write to the church at Rome, never be lacking in zeal, that old word, but keep your spiritual fervor. And he goes on one sentence later, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's zeal based on knowledge. Bless those. Love them. Care for them. Die for them. So practically, how do you relate to people in your life, your neighborhood, your work, your school, who differ from you religiously? I was talking to a friend this week who is a devoted follower of Jesus, and he said he used to think devotion to Jesus meant when he met a person of a different religion, his job was to out-argue them. And he told me about one time he was on a flight in first class, and he started a debate with the guy next to him that eventually the whole cabin joined in on. And when he landed, he was so glad because he was certain he had won the debate. He had crushed his opponent, demolished his arguments, exposed his defective belief system, which oddly enough did not win the other person to the love of Jesus. And he said he has learned the best thing to do with other people of other faiths in his life is to listen, be curious, care about them, ask questions, want to learn, sincerely want to know. Assume that I might have something to learn. So I want to invite every one of us to listen with love. Before you leave today, I want to invite you to write down the name of one person in your life who has a religious difference from you, different faith, pray for them, and just start a conversation. Just ask, tell me about your spiritual journey. What was it like growing up in that tradition? How has it shaped your life? What do you believe about this or about that? There's no pressure on this. You don't have to make a sales pitch. You don't have to worry that if you show interest without saying you think they're wrong, you haven't done your job right as a Christian. Just care. Just be curious. Now, zeal according to knowledge means that we don't just tolerate people of other faiths. We honor them. We love them. We protect them. People sometimes wonder, well, uh, what do Christians think happens to people of other faiths when they die? Are people who firm other religions in danger of hell? And the answer is yes, but people who affirm the Christian religion are in danger of hell too. Being right with God is not a matter of just affirming right beliefs. Jesus' most vivid condemnations were of religious leaders who affirmed the right beliefs. When it comes to other religions, the question ends up being, what's the least amount of stuff that you have to believe in order to get into heaven? And of course, Jesus never answers that. He never says, I will satisfy your curiosity about the minimal belief required for other people to get in. He just calls anybody who's interested Follow me, follow me, follow me. 
And particularly in our day, one of the tests of people who follow Jesus will be our treatment of people of other faiths. A couple months ago, 11 people were shot and killed in Tree of Life Synagogue in Pennsylvania as an act of anti-Semitic hatred just because they were Jewish. We follow a Jewish man who was killed by a Gentile government and died asking God to forgive. So let's agree. We will pray for the safety of every synagogue, every mosque, every temple as well as every follower of Jesus in danger all around our world. This will be a place where courtesy and honor and respect and love for people of every faith will be the heartbeat of our worship in life. And we do this, and we do this, not because we are doubtful about following Jesus, but because we follow Jesus fully, with zeal according to knowledge. Uh, Arthur Burns was the head of the Federal Reserve and a man of immense uh, gravitas, remarkable guy. He began quite a few decades ago now to attend an informal White House group of fellowship and prayer. It was a Christian group. It was based on Jesus. But Arthur Burns was Jewish. So when it was time for somebody to pray, nobody ever called on Arthur Burns because they thought it might be awkward. He might feel awkward. And then one week, a newcomer was leading the group, and he didn't know about any of this, so he turned to Arthur Burns and asked him to pray. And the old-timers wondered what in the world would happen next. And everybody bowed their head and joined their hands, and he began to pray. And this is what he prayed. Lord, may all Jews come to know Jesus Christ. May all Muslims come to know Jesus Christ. May all Buddhists come to know Jesus Christ. May all Christians come to know Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you now for this Jesus who has a way of transcending every barrier and, and dividing wall and bringing people together in him. And so we pray, God, for every human being on this planet, of every known faith, no faith, May they come to know Jesus. Would you give us, God, zeal according to knowledge, just pure love to care for and listen and learn and share. I pray for each one of us in here, God, wherever anybody is on their spiritual journey, and I pray that every follower of Jesus would be able to enter into relationships of love and honor with people of whatever faith and help them come to know and love this Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.